Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining us here in New York City is Luke Tilly, Wilmington Trust Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Luke. Thank you for having me. We will not talk about Tom's time off. We will not talk about the Tesla pickup truck. We will talk about the year ahead, 2020. It's really interesting to me at the moment that over the last month or so, this year-end feel, just a lot of people talking as if the year is over, there's nothing left. Would that be a little bit of complacent just to fast forward to January 1st and start thinking about 2020 before we get through the remaining data points we have so far in the United States and really work through the trade story as well? Yeah, I think that uh, that you've got it there because not only do we have more data points to come out, we also have these looming trade deadlines, right? We don't know what's going to happen on December 15th with the uh, the scheduled tariffs that would go in on U.S. imports from China. And uh, you got to think that if those tariffs go into effect, you would also see the ones from October 15th that have been delayed. So we are not out of the woods for 2019, to the point of your question. How are you framing this for clients at the moment then, Luke? We've gotten pretty optimistic, actually. Just about a month ago, we decided to move from uh, neutral weight to equity equities back to overweight. We put that in international developed. And basically, it's because of uh, some data that appears to be bottoming out. I know this morning's data out of the Eurozone is uh, out of uh, the UK, out of Germany, uh, on the weak side. But we see it as bottoming out a little bit. And we're also optimistic that we will get some sort of trade deal between uh, the US and China. And that's going to mean good things for equities all around. Uh, so we went uh, back to an overweight, and we, we think that's the best place to be for our clients. So in terms of the overweight, Luke, is are there sectors that you guys like? Are you overweight and saying, but I'm still going to be a little bit defensive, utilities, REITs, consumer staples, that type of thing? Yeah, it's mostly been a move that back to the pro-cyclical. So a little bit more tech and a little bit more industrials for some of our portfolio managers. Uh, and then with our uh, with our factor-based investing, a little bit more into value. So it basically, to, to the uh, fitting with the story of getting a little bit more optimistic about equities, a little bit more optimistic in the pro-cyclical sectors as well. So as it relates to the, to the economy, it seems, you know, the more data we see, the more pressure is on the consumer here because we continue to have weakness in manufacturing, business investment, and it seems to put a little bit more pressure on the consumer. I'm guessing you feel pretty good about the consumer heading into 2020? We do feel pretty good about the consumer, mostly because we know debt levels are still low. And also the most recent jobs report was very positive. Uh, it actually it, it took a hit, obviously, because of the, the GM strike. Uh, but the upward revisions to the previous two months makes it clear that companies are still hiring, not as fast as we had earlier in the cycle, but consumers are still in a good spot. Uh, and then back to the tariffs, if we do not get that, that big wave of tariffs coming on December 15th, consumers are pretty set to keep uh, contributing to the economy. Economy. However, that is, you know, balanced by the by the capex picture that you talk about. Firms are very much on their heels here, or sitting on their hands, because they're not sure how uh, this is going to play out. So they're not really adding much to the recovery right There's now. There's been a worry through much of the year, Luke, that perhaps the manufacturing slowdown worldwide would bleed into services. In Germany, a really mixed picture at the moment. It looks like the pace of the slowdown in manufacturing has sort of bottomed out just a little bit, a really subtle sign of that. But at the same time, on the services side, we're starting to see some damage. And I think a lot of people looking at the data this morning and concluding, 
we're not out of the woods yet. What do you say back to that? Yeah, we're not out of the woods yet. I think that the services measure for Germany was something like a 38-month low, obviously being pulled down by the manufacturing sector, which is in such bad shape. Uh, but you have to be thinking ahead, and you have to be thinking about what's the outlook from here. If the manufacturing sector looks to be bottoming, if you are optimistic about the way the trade war is going to go, uh, then you think that the Eurozone, we, we do uh, believe that the Eurozone is highly levered to that global trade situation. Uh, everything that happens in China, if you see a bounce in uh, Asia, if you see it in China, that's going to help the Eurozone. The market tug of war. It's the front page of your 2020 outlook. The interplay of productivity, populism and portfolios. There's been a real tug of war in the US economy as well. And you pointed it out, business spending versus a stronger consumer. Are you saying that we're going to see business spending pick up before we see cracks in a consumer? Actually, the productivity uh, story is the biggest thing for us in terms of the tug of war. We think that all of the investment that's been done in new technologies is going to keep driving productivity further. Yes, we do expect business capex to pick up in 2020, uh, so long as it's not upended by some of those populist policies. Right now, that's trade, but there are clearly a lot of other populist policies being uh, talked about on on both sides of the of the election. So that's the way that we view 2020. It's productivity versus populism and basically which one wins out. So look, it looks like the U.S. Federal Reserve has done a relatively very you know good job in terms of you know, engendering a soft landing. Are you expecting one more rate cut from the Fed or do you think they need to be a little bit more aggressive to support your backdrop? They've been pretty clear about this, that the uh, the most recent rate cut is where they want to be right now and they're going to sit and wait to see how the data plays out. We do know, they say, and we do know, that it takes a while for rate cuts to play through uh, in supporting the economy. We are seeing those lower interest rates helping the housing sector and some other interest rate sensitive sectors. So we do think that they are on hold here unless you get a material change in the outlook, either for uh, growth or for inflation, we think that they'll hold here for quite some time. Luke Tilly, great to catch up with you. Wilmington Trust Chief Economist joining us on the year ahead and the final few weeks of 2019. Pleased to say that joining Paul and myself here in New York City, a man whose resume is so long, I don't think I've got enough time in this segment to no. read it. Ambassador Bob Hornbats, Kissinger Associates Vice Chairman. Good morning to you, Bob. Good morning and great to be back here. Fantastic to have you with us. Let's talk about China and what is going on with Hong Kong and what is going on with trade. You've been there recently and I think a lot of things, a lot of people are trying to grapple with at the moment is China's ability and the US's ability for that matter too, to keep trade on one track and the situation in Hong Kong on another. What are you hearing? I'm hearing both in my conversations recently in Beijing and my conversations with people in Washington that there is a strong intent on both sides to keep the two separate, that they do not want to have them intermingled. They're on different tracks, and I think they want them to stay on different tracks. Are you confident they can keep it on different tracks? I think they can. I think that it is certainly not only possible, but I think it's what they want to do, and it will enable, um, I think, a better process on, uh, on both to avoid the two overlapping. So, Bob, I know you were in Beijing recently. Give us your sense of kind of the mood of the Chinese. Do they really want a deal? Do they want a real deal, or do they want just a deal just on the surface? Uh, three things. One, okay. I think they do want a deal, but not a deal on any terms at all uh, 
terms, particularly terms that are dictated by the United States that are seen by the Chinese as being inimical to their interest or their economic structure. Second, um, they do not subscribe to the notion that they're the demanders because their economy is weak. They feel that their economy has a lot of strengths to it, even though the growth rate's somewhat lower than right. last year, and that they have the tools, the resilience to overcome this weakness. And third, I think they do want to find some um, understanding for a deal, not one, and I think from the American point of view, it's the same thing. It's very hard to deal with a whole panoply of issues all at once in one deal. But I do think they would like a deal where they're willing to buy more American agricultural products, which of course President Trump wants, but they have a very strong uh, commitment within their own system to getting the United States to lower tariffs, particularly the tariffs imposed on September 1st, which they consider to be to have been a surprise that they didn't yeah. anticipate. And that, that set of tariffs is something that's very important to them. And I think if you can get something on agriculture and some American willingness to cut tariffs, um, there is a deal. And the key point on both sides, I think, needs to be that whatever deal it is, it should stop the escalation of tariffs right. because that neither side wants. It'll be harmful to our economy, harmful to theirs, sort of mutually assured disruption. How about in terms of a phase two type of deal, the, the, really st the stuff that really requires some structural changes within Beijing, is that something that you think is realistically on the table? I think it's on the table if you picture a very long table. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think that the... The near-term things, the stuff they've been talking about and I was just mentioning, are doable. The phase two, Trump talks about phase one, then phase two and phase three. It'll be phase one and then two, phase two, three, four, five, and six. This is a long-term process. There are two different economies, two different structures. China has the goal of becoming an advanced technology power, an AI, 5G, new materials, quantum computing, all those things. And the key is to develop a common set of rules and norms to enable competition to take place without confrontation, to have some generally accepted rules and norms for this competition. The United States has not faced a country as competitive as China in as many areas as China in the last 70 years. So this is, and, and plus a very different system. So working this out for both sides is a big challenge that's going to take a long time. The problem, Bob, for a long, long time is that China, yes, has become increasingly competitive, but has cut off foreign competition in domestic markets. Do you see that changing increasingly in the coming years? I think that they are certainly doing things that are preferential to Chinese companies and have been for a while. But I also think that there are a couple of things that are changing. One, intellectual property. Now you have Chinese companies developing their own intellectual property. They want it protected. So I think the Chinese now yeah. understand that having some common rules that protect intellectual property are positive. And second, they do not want decoupling. They still want an active uh, and interactive trade relations, investment relationship with the United States. So they don't want to separate. Uh, they want to strengthen their own economy, but they also want to play a greater role in the global economy. Bob Hormatz, fantastic as always. Always great to see you. Kissinger Associates Vice Chairman joining us on the latest on Hong Kong and China.
live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios alongside Paul Sweeney. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Joining us now is Dan Ives, Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. He joins us on Tesla as they unveil their new Cybertruck. This is the take from Dan Ives that dropped in my inbox this morning. The Tesla pickup has a steel framework that is impressive and looks more out of a Blade Runner sci-fi movie. Dan Ives, let's talk about it. That's exactly what it looks like. How many of these things can they sell when they finally start producing them? Well, that's the issue. I mean, it all comes down to demand. And I think when you look at this, it's a lot more niche than I think some expected. I mean, I think we're looking at maybe 7500 k per year max. And just for comparison, F-150 is over a million per year. So I think a bit disappointing on the mass market appeal, although no doubt this is definitely a Blade Runner appeal or anyone that wants to make a splash in 2022 if you uh, pull up to a party in this truck. (laughs) Dan, is there any sense that they can make any money with this vehicle? I think that's going to be tough given these price points. You know, I think at least in the first year, they'll definitely be running in the red in terms of coming out of the box. But it also comes down to overall demand and and what production looks like. Because if you can't get the volume on this, then this thing could be dead on arrival. And I think, you know, when you look at it, this is definitely the wow factor, even though I view the the launch event as as a mini disaster in terms of the the glass situation. (laughs) And the broken window. yeah, the broken window, and I think that's that's something that definitely is not the uh, the type of launch I think Musk and Fremont wanted. Well, Dan, for any of our listeners, our audience that perhaps missed that moment, they were looking at the vehicle and telling everyone how it was unbreakable, then threw a brick at it, and guess what? It smashed, and then I think they had another go, and it smashed again. Dan, I just wonder what we can and shouldn't take away from that moment. Does that tell you anything? Does it tell you that they're nowhere near to actually following through on producing this thing? Well, I do think that maybe they released this a little too early in terms of at least the the initial prototype and launch event. And I think, look, you get one chance to make a first impression. And I think the initial take here, from a Wall Street perspective, it comes down to can this sell significantly 3 million pickups sold in the U.S.? Ford and GM own that market. Can they penetrate this? When you look at this, I view it as more small segment of the market, Tesla loyalists that they're going to go after, um, rather than any sort of mass adoption. I think that's a bit of the disappointment, even though the Mad Max, Blade Runner type look, they definitely got. Dan, where are they going to build this thing? I'm not sure they've got capacity anywhere. I mean, I think that they're trying to build it on Mars, but all <laughs> joking aside, I think, look, I, I, I could see them building it potentially in Giga um, or you know, in Fremont, they could tool line there, but I think there's not as many parts um, that overlap as we've seen maybe with a Model Y and a Model 3. So I see Giga is probably the biggest potential area uh, where they could build this out uh, in Nevada. Dan, looking at the price action, the stock's lower in the pre-market by 3.5%, but what a move we've had off the June low. This stock has doubled. What's driving it? It's a parabolic move. And I think, look, it definitely overstepped in terms of how negative it got, right? Doomsday, the company was potentially going bankrupt in terms of the naysayers. So I think it got overdone on the downside. But I also think it's overdone on the upside. I think what's happened here is the profitability. Because when you've seen demand in Europe and you see the profitability profile, that one-two punch 
It's been a massive short covering, and I think you're starting to see many view this as if they can sustain profitability, the stock goes higher. That's going to be the question over the next two, three quarters. That's why in the next two, three quarters, this is either a 450 to 500 hour stock or what I view as a two to 250. And, and, and I continue to think it's more the latter, uh, just in terms of them continuing to sustain demand. So that's why I think going to 2020, it all comes down to demand profitability for Tesla. But last night, I viewed the last night as more noise rather than a demand generator. Dan Ives, thanks so much for joining us. Dan Ives, Woodbush Securities, covering all things technology. Margaret Brennan, CBS, Face the Nation. I don't know where Margaret's going to start her show, so I'm just going to go, Margaret, where are you going to start your show this weekend? You have so much to choose from. Exactly. We're going to try to make sense of it, tell people what they need to know in terms of what happens next with the impeachment. Since the scheduled hearings are done, uh, we will hear from Jim Himes, Democrat from Connecticut, who sits on that House Intelligence Committee and had some pretty sharp Q&As. But we'll have to see. You know, the president of the United States just finished about an hour-long phone conversation with Fox this morning, uh, repeating many of the things that Dr. Fiona Hill in testimony yesterday called uh, debunked uh, fictional conspiracy theories spread by Russian intelligence. Um, So we're back to a lot of these same um, uh, conversations that really don't seem to have been moved forward by some of the testimony all of us heard this week. Uh, The president's doing a victory lap, but our Articles of impeachment still have to be drafted, voted on, and then a trial would still have to start in the Senate. The president says he wants to see that happen uh, because he's confirmed or, and pretty confident that the Republicans will keep him in office and not vote to remove him. Margaret, the substance of the hearings is one thing. The Public Relations Act is another, and there is a cohort of Americans that really don't care, are not going to pay attention, and really do uh, view this as a witch hunt. How are Democrats trying to challenge that? Right. Well, what you also heard this week from a string of career foreign policy officials is uh, a pattern behavior they describe as they all came in, took an oath to the Constitution to work on national security issues, and they found time and again that there were individuals who were using their own proximity to the president of the United States uh, for their own benefit in a way that undermined national security. And that's not an insignificant thing to have someone like Rudy Giuliani consistently pointed to as uh, at odds and undermining American institutions. But is that explained enough to the American public to move the needle in terms of building support? Not clear. And is that enough to amount to an impeachable offense, which is high crimes and misdemeanors, treason and bribery? Uh, Democrats don't seem to have won over Republican votes in the House. They still may be able to move forward with impeachment, but does that ultimately vote to remove? The, the question is, you know, I guess a political one going into 2020 is if this is uh, troubling enough to people at home to say that it is not acceptable. And, and that's what Speaker Pelosi says this was about, was about sort of exercising that defense of the democracy um, and, and the way it's supposed to be carried out. Of course, the president has said from the get-go it was a political witch hunt and that there was, you know, no successful quid pro quo. Therefore, there was no bribery. Uh, Margaret, uh, President Trump is out this morning saying that he, quote, wants an impeachment trial. Right. Do you think that's do you think that's going to happen? Is that is that kind of the expectation yes. kind of within the beltway? 
Yes. Uh, Leader McConnell, uh, as a Republican leader in the Senate, has said it it won't be just a vote to, you know, dismiss. It'll be a vote to open a trial. Um, He says he's compelled to do that. And the question is sort of what that what does that look like? Do they call their own witnesses? Is that perhaps when we finally hear from former National Security Advisor John Bolton, whose name came up repeatedly as someone who was so troubled by what he saw that he told his subordinates to go report it to White House lawyers? The only time he had ever ordered them to report things to what White House lawyers, calling Rudy Giuliani a hand grenade, saying this was a drug deal. Uh, So there was clearly uh, real concern, but Bolton has chosen not to testify unless a court orders him to do so, and Democrats have chosen not to wait on that. They want to move more quickly and get this wrapped up before Christmas. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much. We appreciate you stopping by. You can, of course, see Margaret and Face the Nation uh, Sunday morning on the CBS Television Network. You can hear Margaret Brennan this weekend on Bloomberg Radio as well. Listen to Face the Nation Sunday at 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. That's Face the Nation this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. Joining us now is Priya Misra, TD Securities Head of Global Rate Strategy. Uh, And this sort of comes amid a growing swell of concern that perhaps uh, there is political interference. And this is Judy Shelton, uh, one of President Trump's most recent picks for the Fed board. What did you make of this, Priya? So I have just, I mean, uh, beyond the Judy Shelton issue, which, you know, none of us really have enough information to make a comment on that. But I would say the Fed actually has been as a political body that they they can be i i don't think it helps to have the president or any political interference even if it's just tweets or it's talk i think it creates a, a, a sort of communication challenge from the fed as they are trying to navigate i think which is a very difficult macro environment because as the fed has been saying multiple times we've never had you know, to deal with global growth slowdown and the uncertainty shock and the fact that so far all we've seen is weakness in manufacturing. So the Fed has put these insurance cuts in place and now they're on hold. And so now it gets really tricky because at some point our view is that the Fed will have to restart easing early next year. And this is why I don't love the political interference because I think they have to ease because the consumer and the service sector is going to get impacted. But again, if they suddenly change their stance from on hold to easing, does it look political? And in an election year where I think everything is going to look politicized, I would really wish that there would be less talk about political interference and have the Fed sort of just look at fundamentals. But that's a communication perception issue. I do think that the Fed, uh, in all my years of following them, I think they will do the right thing, um, but, but it's going to the preemptive card has been played. So now it's all going to be on the data, financial conditions, and critically, this hope that everyone has that the U.S. consumer holds up. If there's any cracks in that, I do think that the Fed will react, um, irrespective of the election or, or any political calls for them to ease. So, uh, Priya, the consumer has been, certainly in the U.S., but you know, certainly in a lot of the Western economies as well, the consumer's really been pushing the economy forward as we've seen some weakness in manufacturing and business investment. What's your sense of the consumer right here? Yeah, so I think uh, globally we've seen some signs that there is a little bit of a spillover, but I agree. I think Germany, you look at the German consumer, sort of holding up there despite the fact that I would argue manufacturing in Germany is already in a recession. Um, In the U.S., it's been a similar story. 
I think because this has really emanated from uncertainty um, and from, you know, around trade, around global growth. And so what companies have done is the first thing that they would do is sort of not invest in something that's hard to unwind, which would be a big capital investment uh, project. That's why we've seen uh, business investment globally, but, but also in the U.S. take a hit. I think the hope was that either global growth bottoms out and actually starts moving up or that the uncertainty goes away. If that doesn't happen, in our views, neither happens early next year, then the next step would have to be for businesses to cut back on hiring. This is and I think there's, a, uh, there's some of that already appearing through weekly hours falling. And so I think the link will be through the labor market. Sorry tr- to cut you off there. No, 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 please. Yeah. I, I'm trying to square your uh, your assertion here, which is a weakening consumer and possibly uh, Fed rate cuts early next year, with the increasing consensus heading into 2020 that things are going to chug along and that actually the U.S. and, and, and European equity markets will continue to surge and everyone's going to be happy. Where is the disconnect here? Yeah, I think the disconnect uh, comes from the the view that President Trump into the election next year is going to capitulate on China. And there's an assumption that global growth and investment and all that is weak only because of the U.S.-China trade war. I actually think if you look at the weakness in global growth, it started well before we were talking about a U.S.-China trade war. So it's preceded it because global growth has been slowing. And I don't see where the engine of growth will come from. So that's part one of the call. Part two of the call is that even if we get a phase one trade deal, which I actually think it's interesting that we haven't yet gotten it. This was the stuff they had agreed upon in May. And we're still talking about whether we get we get the deal or not. Hong Kong absolutely complicates it. But even if we get the deal, which is our baseline view, it doesn't affect, it doesn't resolve the structural issues. So I think the assumption is into the election, we're going to get a reduction in uncertainty certainty and therefore businesses invest. I actually make the opposite argument into an election, which is close, very tough to call, as many pollsters figured out in 2016, that actually business uh, uncertainty will be higher. And so, but ultimately, it's going to depend upon is that actually filtering through into the consumer data, or, and the link will have to come through the labor market. It's when the job market slows, or if the job market slows, I think that's when people will really get nervous about the U.S. consumer. So far, the labor market has softened from earlier this year, but it's not weak on an outright basis. So the next three, four months, I think we'll have to see some sort of convergence between where equity valuations are versus, you know, Fed pricing probabilities. Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.